The only gate in the walls of Jerusalem that opens eastward is St. Stephen's Gate. The ancient gate was actually redesigned in the 1900s to allow cars to travel in and out. It gets its name from a tradition that Stephen was stoned nearby this gate. And how appropriate. To name a gate opening out of the city after Stephen. For you remember it was his martyrdom that tossed the early Christians out of their nest. Jesus had ordered his disciples to go into all the world and teach the gospel. Yet as late as the end of chapter 7 in Acts, they were content to just hang out at home. It was the stoning of Stephen that declared to the Jews Jerusalem was no longer a safe place. Rabbi Saul, the instigator of Stephen's stoning, began to wage a one-man war against the church. And in Acts chapter 8, God uses the persecution to deploy and to disperse his troops. Among those who first launched out was another deacon named Philip. Philip moved up the road into the hills of Samaria, and he preached Jesus to the locals. He healed the lame, and he cast out demons. Miracles were happening. And this attracted the attention of a Samaritan who was no stranger to demons. He had consorted with them in the past. He was a sorcerer named Simon. That's where we start tonight, Acts chapter 8, verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city. This Simon, he dabbled in the occult. He practiced witchcraft. This Simon was the local witch doctor there in Samaria. And apparently he had tapped into someone's power, for he astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. Also means he had an ego, didn't he? He declared his greatness. He was claimed to be someone great. And evidently he backed it up with some fanfare for Luke notes, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. Now, either it was through demonic power or it was through sleight of hand that Simon was able to dazzle the crowd. The Samaritans, of course, were ignorant of spiritual matters, so by default, they attributed Simon's amazing powers to God. And apparently, this had gone on for some time, for they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed... Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Wow, the city's witch doctor is converted to Christ. Now, whether Simon's faith was sincere or bogus, we're not sure. But one thing's certain, he was impressed by Philip's miracles. Understand, sorcery is the practice of tapping into spiritual power apart from God. Previously, Simon, he had relied on pagan forces, on nature and on demons and on the stars. He claimed to have psychic powers, no doubt. He said he was in touch with primal forces. He was into power regardless of the source. I'm sure much of his so-called power was nothing more than illusion and deception. He had a few magic tricks up his sleeve. And how do we know this? Because he was amazed at Philip's miracles. They were real. They had no other explanation than God. Simon knew how to manipulate and deceive a crowd. That's why he could see that Philip was legit. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if we stopped reading here, we would leave confused. For isn't a believer, and these folks were already believers, Isn't a believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit? I mean, without the Spirit, how could the Samaritans even be saved? 
Well, verse 16 explains their deficiency. For as yet, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, we discussed earlier three experiences that a Christian can have with the Holy Spirit. He's with us before our conversion, convicting us of sin, drawing us to the Savior. He comes to dwell in us at the time we're saved. We're born again by the Spirit. But He also wants to fall upon us with spiritual power. This often occurs after a person has come to Christ. Some Pentecostals call it the second blessing. The Bible calls it being filled or being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Just as a person is baptized in water, just as they're immersed in the liquid, likewise the person baptized in the Holy Spirit is engulfed in the Spirit's power. You've probably heard the hymn, Mercy drops round us are falling, but for the showers we plead. Well, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a thunderstorm of living water. Not just a drink, but a thunderstorm. It's like sitting in a dunk tank at the county fair. The Spirit hits the lever, and you're suddenly over your head in Holy Spirit power. This is what the Samaritans lacked. It was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what had happened there in Samaria. People were saved. They were even baptized with water, baptized as Christians. This is what's meant by the phrase, baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It means they had been baptized as Christians. But before Peter and John arrived, they had no knowledge of this second blessing. The baptism of the Spirit. As of yet, the Spirit had fallen on none of them. Verse 17 solves the problem. Then Peter and John, they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. He'd already indwelt them, but now he comes upon them. Peter explains more fully the work of the Spirit and they receive. You know, it's interesting in Matthew 16 verse 19, Jesus promised Peter... I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Throughout the book of Acts, Peter was the doorman who unlocked the gospel to each new racial group. He was there at Pentecost and preached to the Jews. Here he opens the door to the Samaritans. And when we get to Acts chapter 10, he is the one who will preach the gospel to the Gentiles in Caesarea. Peter, you see, was the continuity that God used to show that all three groups are now one body, one church in Christ Jesus. Well, verse 18, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now notice, Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given. He saw that the Spirit was given. That means that there had to have been some discernible sign. What was it? Was it the speaking in tongues? Was it the gift of prophecy? What was the discernible, visible, audible sign? 1 Corinthians 14 explains that not everyone will speak in an unknown tongue. But often it does occur when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You want to praise God. And the gift of tongues sort of unleashes our spirit in order to utter a fluent flow of praise to God. Tongues could have been the outward demonstration that Simon saw. Whatever the sign, Simon wanted the power. Now, I'm not a magician, but I've been told that magicians will often sell their tricks to each other. And perhaps that's what Simon thought, that he could purchase the power of the Holy Spirit. He wanted to purchase Philip's trick. By the way, this is where we get the sin of simony, an attempt at purchasing the authority or the power of God. You know, in the Middle Ages, ecclesiastical offices and even absolution of sin, forgiveness, was sold by the Pope and the church for a monetary price. It was the sin of simony. And this sin is still around, sadly. In some churches today, positions and influence are doled out to the largest donors. People buy their spiritual authority. Of course, this should never be. God's gifts are just that. They're gifts. 
If we could buy them with money or even with our good works, we would cheapen them. God's favor is not for sale. The Greek word for spiritual gifts is charismata. Charis, grace, mata, gifts. God's gifts are grace gifts. The Spirit's empowerment is prompted by grace, not by gold or by our good works. Verse 20 tells us, But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Peter's pretty clear, isn't he? The ministries and the power of the Holy Spirit are not for sale. He says, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. You know, usually we think of envy as a materialistic thing rather than as a spiritual sin. We think of coveting our neighbor's car or house or boat. But you know, it's also possible to be envious of spiritual matters, to be jealous of another person's ministry. Oh, why does she get to teach Bible studies? All I get to do is cook meals for sick people. What qualifies him to be an elder? And not me. Sometimes we can become jealous over spiritual matters. We need to guard our hearts against any kind of envy, but especially spiritual envy. For this was a sin of Simon. And as Peter said, he was poisoned by his bitterness. Don't let that happen to you. Bitterness can be a maximum security prison. Some people never break out. Verse 24, then Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. You know, we're never told what happened to Simon. But there is a tradition that he became a leading heretic and opponent in the early church. That he founded a belief known as Gnosticism. It was the heresy that Paul will refute in the book of Colossians. There are also reports that Simon went mad and died by burying himself alive. One thing's for sure, bitterness and jealousy can form a prison, a maximum security prison from which it's awful difficult to escape. By all accounts, Simon never regained his freedom. Well, when they, Peter and John, had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Hey, the church in Jerusalem, the first church, the big 12 apostles had now put their stamp of approval on the spiritual awakening that was happening in Samaria. Imagine how exciting it was for Philip to be a part of this, to be on the cutting edge of of the Great Commission, this expansion of the church. He's riding a spiritual wave. It's glorious. Miracles are happening. People are getting saved. When he receives some strange orders. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then notice the next words. This is desert. The road to Gaza was like Interstate 16 that runs south of Macon to Savannah. There is no more barren, boring stretch of road in the whole country. Trust me. Philip was being asked to leave behind a spiritual revival now. Souls were getting saved. Miracles were happening. A church was blossoming of which Peter was the leader. I mean, sorry, Philip was the leader. I mean, Samaria was where the action was. Yet now Philip is told to go to some undisclosed location on a lonely highway to nowhere. This move just didn't make sense. And yet Philip obeyed. How do you respond when God gives commands that to you don't make sense? Philip obeyed. Verse 27, so he arose and went. You know, apparently celebrity or A large ministry wasn't really Philip's goal. 
If it had been, he'd have stayed behind in Samaria. He had only one ambition, and that was to please the Lord. He was a servant. He was a deacon at heart. Well, behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake that chariot. (laughs) Now we're told several facts about this fellow from Ethiopia. First, he was a eunuch. In oriental courts, a queen's male servants and cabinet members were often castrated to sort of protect the queen from any sexual advances, any hanky-panky in the palace. Second, this fellow was a man with clout. He was the queen's treasurer. Third, this man had a hunger and thirst for righteousness. I mean, think about it. This Ethiopian had traveled 200 miles across the plains of Egypt, across the hot sands of the Sinai, to Jerusalem, the holy city, looking for spiritual answers. But now he's headed home disappointed. All he has to show for his pilgrimage is a Gideon scroll he took from his hotel room. That's all he's got. And that's what he's reading when Philip approaches him. Notice this, so Philip ran to him. I love that. Philip ran to him. Notice Philip's enthusiasm. You know our English word enthusiasm, you know where it comes from? It comes from a Greek word, entheos, or full of God. That's what enthusiasm means. Real enthusiasm is being full of God. Philip is filled up with the Holy Spirit. And as Philip approached the Ethiopian, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, here's what you really need to understand. Understand what's involved when the Holy Spirit leads you to share your faith with another person, just as he does Philip here. You can count on this. If God is prompting you, he's also working on the other guy with whom he's told you to share. You can always trust the Holy Spirit to be at work on both ends of the connection. The angel told Philip to go to Gaza. Now the Spirit is priming the heart of the Ethiopian. He's reading a Bible, no less. And Philip recognizes that he's reading from Isaiah. In fact, he's reading the very scripture that spoke prophetically of the work of Jesus on the cross. And Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I? unless someone guides me. (laughs) And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Man, by this point, Philip's really buzzed. He realizes he's into a God thing here. God's at work. God is orchestrating this encounter with the Ethiopian. In fact, the place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life was taken from the earth. Philip couldn't have thumbed through his Bible and found a better launching pad for the preaching of the gospel. The man was reading Isaiah chapter 53. The Ethiopian was poring over the famous passage about the suffering servant. The clearest description of the sacrifice of Jesus in the whole Old Testament. No coincidence here. And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now apparently they had come to a brook. And the guy wanted to be baptized. We assume from this that baptism in the early church was by full immersion. Churches today will sprinkle. But if Philip had sprinkled the Ethiopian, I mean a canteen would have been enough to do the job. But for him to be fully immersed, he knew that he needed a body of water. And so he pointed it out. What hinders me from being baptized? And then Philip said, verse 36... 
If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I'll never forget one of our Calvary Chapel baptisms. It was held at a swimming pool not far from the church. A woman and her daughter had gotten saved, and they were being baptized that day. She had warned me in advance that her husband might be there. And he was a tough guy. He had lived a rough life. In fact, it had been many, many years since he had even darkened the door of a church. She was a little leery of his presence. I had just baptized the daughter, and I was about to baptize the woman when all of a sudden I heard a splash. I looked up, and it was the husband. This guy had jumped into the pool fully clothed. To the best of my recollection, he didn't even take his shoes off. I think he pulled his wallet out and handed it to a friend. Tears were just streaming down this guy's cheeks as he waded his way over to us. And I'll never forget his question. He said, what do I need to do to be baptized? Just like the Ethiopian said to Philip. And you know what I told him? If you believe in Jesus with all your heart, you may. <laughs> just what Philip said. It was all right out of the book of Acts. It was so exciting. He replied, I believe. And I ended up baptizing him and his wife together that day. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. Everyone who witnessed it rejoiced. Now, I like Philip's response to the Ethiopian here. He says, if you believe with all your heart. We know that salvation is by faith. But it's by that faith that comes from the heart. Remember James chapter 2 verse 19? Remember what we learned? There James says, you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. I mean, the demons have an, an intellectual faith. They, they believe with their head. They acknowledge the facts about God. But to believe with your heart is different. It's to pledge your allegiance. It's a faith that embraces a new way of life. It's a faith that gets on board. And heart faith is saving faith. Notice here Philip is careful not to water down the prerequisites for baptism. The Ethiopian needs to check his sincerity. That's why he tells him, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Verse 38 and so he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the, and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. But this wasn't the end of the story for either Philip or the Ethiopian. This African dignitary returned home and he shared his faith with other Ethiopians. Even today, a vibrant Christian community exists in Ethiopia that traces its roots back to the eunuch. A black African was one of Christianity's first converts. And what happened to Philip? Well, we're told. Now, when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, snatched him away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing, but Philip was found at Azotus. God did a little rapture practice. The Lord caught Philip away. The Greek word harpazo means to snatch up. By the way, it's the same word used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 to describe the rapture of the church. Philip wound up in the coastal town of Azotus, some 35 miles north of the road to Gaza. It was obviously a miracle of transportation. God beams him up. Verse 40 and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Philip ends up settling in Caesarea, he and his four daughters. In fact, later in Acts chapter 21, Paul and his buddies are going to hang out in Caesarea at the house of Philip. What an adventure this was for Philip. But it all started when he was willing to obey a strange command. He just branched out. He just stepped out. He took a blind leap of faith, and God worked a miracle. You know, a boring life turns into a thrill ride when we love people and follow God regardless and dare to share our faith. That's what we learn.
chapter 9 begins. Then Saul, remember Saul? He's still at it, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. You remember Rabbi Saul had overseen the stoning of Stephen. Yet rather than silence the Christians, all he had done was fan their flame. The Christians in Jerusalem, in response to the persecution, they were moving out. They were spreading the gospel. Believers had moved up the coast to Caesarea. They they had settled in the hills of Samaria. Now churches were springing up in Damascus, 140 miles to the northeast. And Saul takes his rage on the road, some real road rage, He went to the high priest and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. Apparently the city of Damascus had a big Jewish population. The first believers were Jews and so Saul figured this would be a hotbed for Christianity. So that if he found any who were there of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now notice how Saul refers to Christianity. He refers to it as, quote, the way. Isn't that an interesting name for our faith? You know, Christianity is not just a moral code or a system of beliefs or an observance of of religion or ritual. No, Christianity is far more than that. It's a way of life. What a fitting name, the way. Now, Stephen's testimony apparently had gotten under Saul's skin, so much so that all he could think about was stamping out the message that had so infuriated him. He hated everything Christian. And his attack on Christianity would qualify today as a hate crime. You know, several years ago, two Northeastern University professors, they did a study on hate crimes in America. They concluded that 60% of the perpetrators were thrill seekers, just insecure people trying to be macho. 35% were turf defenders. These are the bigots that throw rocks at a house of a family of a different race that moves onto the block. But there were 5% of these perpetrators of hate crimes that deliberately built a false theology to rationalize their prejudice. These were the people who thought they were doing God a favor by persecuting the group that they hated. And these were the most violent violent and the most lethal. And this was Saul. Pascal once observed, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. This was Saul. Saul was zealous for God, but his zeal was without knowledge. You know, it's easy to hate what you don't understand. That's about to change for Saul. For he is about to make a new acquaintance. Verse 3. Now as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he, boom, he hit the ground. He fell right to the ground. Now some artists depict Saul on the back of a horse. And that the light literally knocked him out of the saddle. Whether Saul was on horseback or on foot, he was definitely on his high horse, no doubt about that. It was a long fall to the ground for Saul, for a proud rabbi like Saul. He was headed to Damascus to knock off Christians. Instead, he's the one who gets knocked off. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, we learn later that the voice from heaven was Jesus. But notice what he doesn't say. Why are you persecuting my church? That's what Saul was doing. He was persecuting the church. No, instead, Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Pay attention to this. Any attack against the church is an attack against Jesus himself. You cannot pick on Kathy Adams without involving me. You pick on my wife, I'm going to get involved. And likewise, you cannot hurt the bride of Christ without upsetting Jesus. He takes it personally. Here Saul is persecuting the church and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5. 
And he said, who are you, Lord? Now, I got an image in my mind as to how this might have played out. One of my favorite John Wayne movies is Big Jake. Ever watch Big Jake? What a great movie. And in the final scene, John Wayne playing Big Jake, he kills the bad guy. And Richard Boone, he looks up and he says, and he's looking at John Wayne and he says, Who are you? And John Wayne thunders, Jacob McCandles. And the guy looks surprised. He says, I thought Jews was dead. And that's when John Wayne says, not hardly. I love it. <laughs> well, that's how I hear this conversation playing out. Saul thought Jesus was dead. But all of a sudden, big Jesus now knocks Saul off his high horse. And he says, not hardly. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads were sharp metal pokers used to maneuver cows. Cattle prodders are such a great illustration, an analogy of the Holy Spirit's conviction. Hey, stray from God and the Holy Spirit, he'll keep poking at you. He'll keep prodding you. He'll use your wife or your pastor or circumstances or situations. He'll, he'll poke at you. He'll try to steer you back. You can't get away from him. You see, Saul was trying to stamp out publicly the very thing that haunted him privately. Stephen's joy, his peace in the throes of death, the glory of God that radiated from Stephen was everything in life Saul wanted. Yet Stephen had obtained it apart from Judaism. Stephen's savior was a man that the Jews had called a blasphemer. But Saul couldn't shake his testimony. The Holy Spirit kept prodding. Even though there was no room in his theology for Jesus, the Holy Spirit kept prodding. You know, usually we think of Christianity's most vocal critics, most violent opponents. We think of them as the, as, as the unreachable, as the hardest nuts to crack. In reality, they're the ones that may be closest to salvation. They're the ones that are kicking against the goads. The Holy Spirit's got them. He's getting them. They don't like it, so they're kicking against it. That's why they're so violent. If they didn't sense God's conviction, they'd be ambivalent and apathetic. But like Saul, their resistance is actually their way of kicking against the prodders. Verse 6. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And here is the first proof of the genuineness of a man's conversion. This cry, Lord, what do you want me to do? You know somebody's saved when that's their heart's cry. Too many people start out their Christian experience with the demand, Lord, here's what I want you to do. We know a person is saved when they have a desire to serve. Lord, what do you want me to do? Saul melts. He breaks. This hard rabbi is suddenly trembling. He has seen the light. His world has been shattered. Jesus is alive after all. He actually met him. And if Jesus rose from the dead, it means he's Lord of life. How can you escape him? And yet so many try. Are you fighting against God tonight? You can't win. It's best to surrender. That's why he prods you. That's why he's poking you tonight. He wants you to surrender to his will and receive him as Lord. And when Saul does surrender to Jesus, he gets some orders. Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Notice Jesus instructs us one step at a time. Notice this. You see, before I get step two in God's plan, I first have to obey step one. He says, Saul, you go into the city, and then after that I'll tell you what the next step is. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. 
But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. You know, God's revelation to Saul worked like a camera. As soon as the light hit the film, the shutter closed. And it didn't reopen until the image had had time to develop. God had blinded his new servant Saul so that he could have three days in the dark room so that he could memorize the light of Christ that he had seen. It would forever now be etched in his mind. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias... And he said, here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. Did you know the street called Straight still exists there in Damascus even to this day? It's it's the main thoroughfare that cuts east to west through the city center. And on the street, inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. You know, here's another proof of a genuine conversion. When you meet Jesus, you'll want to talk. Paul is praying, seeking the Lord. Then the Lord continues his instructions to Ananias, verse 12. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, that's you, coming in and putting his hand on him so that he may receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is a bit reluctant. And can you blame him? I mean, this is like God calling an American to go and pray for Osama bin Laden. Lord, are you sure? That's exactly how the church saw Saul. He was terrorist enemy number one. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. You see, God had chosen Saul, not vice versa. He had chosen him by grace. And from the beginning, God had a mission in mind for Saul. He would preach to Gentiles, to kings, and to Jews. And in that order, everything about Saul's life had prepared him for this mission. Saul was born a Jew, and yet he was raised in a Gentile city called Tarsus. He spoke Greek and Hebrew. He was a Roman citizen and a Jewish rabbi. He was familiar with Greek culture and Roman law and Hebrew theology. Paul knew how to work with his hand and make tents, but he also had been academically schooled under the greatest of Jewish rabbis, Gamaliel. He moved easily among both Gentiles and Jews, pagans and religious, princes and paupers, scholars and scrubbers. And Saul was chosen and prepared by God. You know, ironically, the biggest persecutor of Christians will also become the most persecuted of Christians. For before his life is over, Saul will suffer much for Jesus' sake. It was predicted of him even from the beginning. Verse 17. And Ananias, he went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him said, I love this, Brother Saul. Brother Saul? What a token of God's grace. How encouraging it must have been for Saul to hear those words, to be greeted by Ananias, Brother Saul. Ananias' acceptance of Saul into the family, he called him brother. It just affirmed the Lord's forgiveness of his sins and of the terrible ways he had persecuted the church. You know, this is what fellowship does for you and me. You know, when you and I treat each other like brothers and sisters in God's family, the acceptance, the forgiveness of Christ, it solidifies in our heart. We we begin to believe that we're brothers and sisters. It solidifies our identity in Christ. This is why fellowship is so important. Well, Ananias tells him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now notice again, Saul is a brother 
but he's not yet filled with the Spirit. Again, a Christian can be indwelt by the Spirit and not yet be filled with that same Spirit. Two different experiences. The baptism of the Holy Spirit often occurs subsequent to conversion. Lananias prays, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. You know, the light that had blinded Saul, it may have caused an affection and caused his eyes to scab over. And this was likely a recurring condition that plagued him his whole life. Apparently, it flared up during his mission trip to Galatia. For in Galatians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul talks about the church's love for him, and he says, you would have given me your very eyes if you could have. Some people even believe that this was Paul's thorn in the flesh that he speaks of to the Corinthians. The Greek word translated thorn means stake or dagger. A person with trachoma develops a pus over the eye that causes the lashes to become brittle. At times they dig into the eyeball. It feels like a thorn in the flesh. Verse 19. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples of Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. He preached that Messiah is the Son of God. Not just the Son of David or the Son of Man, but the Son of God as well. And then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. How amazing this was. Christianity's chief persecutor has now become its, one of its most powerful preachers. Boy, the power of the gospel to change a man's life. You know, most New Testament scholars will slip Galatians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, in between verses 21 and 22 of Acts chapter 9, in order to get the right chronology of Paul's early ministry. In Galatians, Paul tells us that after his conversion, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Paul had to spend some time in private sorting out his theology. Jesus had upset his apple cart. He changed everything. And so Saul retreated into the desert, possibly Mount Sinai, where Moses met with God. He went there to reconcile the work of Christ with what had been written about the Messiah in the Old Testament. You could say that on the road to Damascus, Jesus revealed himself to Saul. But it was in solitude that Jesus revealed himself in Saul. And I think this is a good practice for us. It's good for us to take time to learn and to ask the Lord to affirm what we've learned to us personally. It's one thing to learn things at church. It's another thing for God to affirm those things to our heart. I remember right after I was saved, I took some time and I got away. And I just said, Lord, I, I want to reread my Bible. I want you to speak to me. I want these things to come alive in my heart. I want to take those things that I've been told and I want to rehearse them before you. I want you to show me that they're real and that they're true. I think it's a good practice. Paul would later write of the gospel, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. It was during those three years in Arabia that God spoke to his heart personally. Well, at the end of verse 22, Saul was winning arguments but he wasn't winning many souls. He had the right message, but he had the wrong audience. He had yet to target Gentiles. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. The Jewish hit squad had staked him out there in Damascus. 
They'd set up an ambush by the gate. The Jews wanted to eliminate him. They knew the damage he could do. That's when the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And I got to say it. What a letdown for Saul. He loved these Jews. He wanted to see them saved, but they had rejected the gospel. I guess you could say that at this point, Saul was a real basket case. What a humiliating way for a once proud rabbi to have to leave the city in a basket and escape at night over a wall. You know, one practical thing, this also meant that Saul apparently was not a big man. He had to be rather small to fit into a basket, even a big basket. You know, there's actually a third century novel. It's called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And, and in this novel, it's, it gives a description, a physical description of the Apostle Paul. I want to read it to you. He was small in size with meeting eyebrows. In other words, he, he had eyebrows that grew together, looked like a caterpillar crawling across his face. With a rather large nose, bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, full of grace. For at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. Remember the face of an angel? That's what was said of Stephen back in Acts chapter 6, verse 15, that he had the face of an angel. It's amazing to me, now Saul radiates that same glory that he had witnessed in Stephen. He's now embraced the Savior, Stephen's Savior, as his own. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Runs into the same problem. But Barnabas, oh Barnabas, you know what the name Barnabas means? Son of encouragement. He took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. And that he had spoken to him. And how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. This Barnabas. He was a minister of reconciliation. That's what Paul tells us we should be. He was filled with grace. You know, Barnabas always wanted to look past your failures and focus on your potential. May we have plenty of Barnabases in this church. It's no accident that this Barnabas was the one who opened up the door to the church to Saul. And so Saul was with him at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. You, you remember, Stephen was a Hellenist. He was a Jew who had adopted Greek culture. And it seems that Saul is trying to take up where Stephen had left off. Perhaps he still felt guilty over Stephen's death. And he wanted to assume Stephen's mission, carry on his work. Saul, though, had yet to embrace his own calling. God had appointed him to the Gentiles first. And again, they attempted to kill him. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him on to Tarsus. It was another letdown. We know from other scriptures that Paul will spend the next seven years in Tarsus, probably feeling like a total failure. He had been unsuccessful in reaching the Jews in either city, in Damascus or in Jerusalem. You know, successful ministry takes the right man at the right place at the right time. Saul was God's man, no doubt about it, but it wasn't God's place or God's time. He wasn't finding the right time in the right place and the right audience. Saul was trying to minister for God, but this was a time when God wanted to minister to Saul. And so for the next seven years, God teaches him and instructs him and he learns. Soon, Saul will find success, great success, but not among the Jews. God is going to send him to the Gentiles. Verse 31, 
Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. Their chief antagonist had been converted. Now they have peace. The church experiences a period of prosperity and expansion as well as peace. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now God is just beginning with Saul, but he's not quite ready yet. So the scene shifts back to Peter. And that's who we'll talk about next week. Father, we thank you for your word tonight and for uh, these tremendous passages of Scripture, Lord. Help us not be a Simon. Help us not think that we can, that the things of God are for sale. No, no, they're, they're gifts of your grace. Help us to believe and trust and receive. Lord, I pray that that like Saul of Tarsus, that we would, that you'd knock us off our high horse if need be. That you'd humble us. You'd help us to always surrender to your will. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be ready to obey even strange requests. Even leaving a revival and going to a road to nowhere. Help us be willing to have that kind of faith where we can trust you. Give us a love for people. Give us, Lord, a desire to share our faith. And give us, Lord, an unquestioning obedience to your will. And Lord, finally, tonight, we thank you. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling our lives. But Lord, we want more. We've been promised more. You've told us that you'll give us your power, power from on high. And we need that power. We acknowledge our, our weakness tonight and our inadequacies tonight and our failure to live up to your demands and to resist temptation and to be all you want us to be. We're incapable in and of our own strength. So tonight, Lord, we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you fall down upon us tonight here in this assembly in our cars, on our way home, in our beds as we go to sleep tonight, tomorrow as we wake up, I pray, Lord, that at some point in the next few hours that you'll come upon us, that you'll empower us, that you'll fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.